This is KJZZ, your news and information station on air, online, and on your phone. I'm Tiara Vianne. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of January 8th, 2024. It was a disappointing season for the Arizona Cardinals, who won just four games. But that didn't dampen the carnival-like atmosphere that surrounds an NFL stadium on game days. Throughout the season, fans were entertained by a quick-witted performer named Kid Friendly. Bridget Dowd found out more about the man behind the mic. I just microphone check one, two, one spot to my lady right there. It's a gray 45-degree Sunday afternoon in Glendale, and fans are funneling into State Farm Stadium for the last Cardinals game of the season. A crowd is gathered on the pathway from a guest parking lot to stadium security. They're holding up their phones, recording videos, and dancing to the beats of a freestyle rapper performing along the bridge. Cardinals fan Perry Quintenbaum is walking by wearing former quarterback Kurt Warner's number 13 when he hears this lyric. I thought it was radio playing and I heard him and then I noticed he was engaging with everybody coming through and people are looking over and laughing and it's just a fun time. The rapper seamlessly weaving people's outfits and actions into his lyrics as they pass is 25-year-old Dayton Jackson, also known by his stage name, Kid Friendly. I made the transition from like cursing in my music to not cursing at all and so it was like kid-friendly music. All season he's been standing outside the stadium on game days entertaining fans as they make their way inside. People are just so astounded. I might talk about their whole outfit before they realize like they look down. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, he's talking, like about he's me. talking about my clothes." <laughs> so it's always fun ultimately to get people to smile and laugh and break the ice. And his raps aren't just for the love of music, but for a cause. Jackson found his own nonprofit called Kids at Heart Foundation focused on changing the culture of hip hop. So that it can not only be a place of destruction and perversion and death, but um, a culture that uplifts, speaks positivity, speaks love through the music. Jackson has a basket set aside for donations when he raps on the street, and that cash helps fund his nonprofit. It's crazy. I just had recently somebody donate a Rolex to me. It was so crazy. Like they dropped it in the <laughs> they basket? They dropped it in the basket. Oh my a God. Rolex. About three or four times a week, Jackson raps wherever he can, outside concerts, events, and games, in hopes of spreading positivity through his music. I wanted it to be pure. I wanted it to be able to touch the ears of like kids and grandparents, you know, all ages. And I want to speak about love and faith and, you know, family and stuff like that. He says he's able to do so with the support of his wife. Jackson says he started a career in marketing, but the nine to five office job just wasn't for him. After about a couple of weeks, I'm like, babe, this is totally not it, yo. Like, this is not it. I'm like, I think I can make just as much money rapping on the corner. And she's like, I believe you. So in December 2022, he quit his job, got some equipment, and started rapping outside various venues. And I think I performed maybe five times the first week, and I made more than I made at my job, like barely. So I did it again, but the next week I doubled it. 
His financial success with rapping is fairly new, but he's been working on his freestyle skills pretty much his whole life. Jackson says it all started when he was a young kid and he and his brothers would entertain their mom. So she would have her friends over um, to kill some time, you know, drink some wine or whatever, and she would yell out, introducing Dayton Jackson and each one of my brothers individually. We would come out and dance and rap and entertain them. His mom, Michelle Jackson, says she always knew her son was smart and witty, but didn't realize how good he was at rapping until he was 17. She says he came home from school one day, went into his room and wrote and recorded a song. And I listened to it and I was blown away. She says he's always been an out-of-the-box thinker who didn't want to work a regular job, so it didn't surprise her when he started rapping on street corners. He's so driven and so passionate about what he does that I just don't see him not being successful because he doesn't have a plan B. Dayton's plan A is to keep climbing up in the industry and use his influence for good. If somebody's favorite rapper tells them to do drugs, they're going to do the drugs. So um, I just want to capitalize on that and be the change I want to see. He says that means teaching kids that things like love and being sober can be cool too. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Front Terrace News, the federal government reopened the Lukeville port of entry last week, but officials in Phoenix and at the border say the under Underlying issues that prompted the closure are still going on. From the state capitol and from the Lukeville port of entry, Wayne Shutsky and Elisa Resnick report. Governor Katie Hobbs praised the decision to reopen the port, but she stopped short of saying she is confident another closure won't happen in the future. Confident is a strong word um, <laughs> that I wouldn't use based on my conversations, but um, I'm, I'm thankful that it's open now and hopeful that the, 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 the path we're on is, continues. Hobbs, a Democrat, was openly critical of the Biden administration's decision to close the Lukeville port on December 4th. In late December, Hobbs said it wasn't the right solution to address the uptick in migrant arrivals along the border. Again, this was a bad decision and we need the, gov the federal government to step in and listen to our local leaders and respond to the needs that we're seeing on the ground. Biden did not heed Hobbs' call to use National Guard troops to reinforce CBP agents in Lukeville, and the governor ended up sending National Guard troops herself. But those troops were sent under state orders and not by the president. That means their mission is limited to assisting with local law enforcement activities, even though those sometimes occur far from the border itself, like police efforts to disrupt the drug trade. The governor says those troops will remain in place for now, but they won't be assisting the Border Patrol agents who are processing migrants and asylum seekers. I, I think the bigger issue is that the the, the, the level of additional support personnel that's needed to be able to address the the increased influx of migrants that we're seeing, which is what CBP agents were pulled to help with processing, um, and and to keep the to keep the border secure and to keep commerce flowing um, and tourism. For Southern Arizona, closing a crossing like Lukeville has disastrous consequences on the ground. Local communities and economies on both sides of the border rely on tourists heading to places like the Sonoran beach town of Puerto Peñasco. Pima County Supervisor Adelita Grijalva says that's come to a total standstill in the past month. It's called Muerto, Muerto Peñasco right now instead of Puerto Peñasco because nobody is there. Federal officials say the closure was necessary so that the staff working at the port could help Border Patrol agents process migrants instead. Grijalva says pulling that small number of customs officers working at the port to other jobs just doesn't make sense. And I was very concerned because I wondered what the 23 people that were here, what they were actually going to accomplish wherever they were. And even the, even the presence of the National Guard, what, 
what are they going to be able to help with? The Border Patrol's Tucson sector has seen some of the highest numbers of apprehensions border-wide for the last few months. Sector Chief John Maudlin says before Hobbs deployed National Guard troops a few weeks ago, the Tucson sector has had help from Department of Defense personnel like National Guardsmen. Um, but in very limited roles. You know, they, they do a lot of... Um, a lot of surveillance work for us, work on, um, you know, surveillance systems, I, I should say, um, you know, and limited, limited to things like that, but not interaction with migrants. He says this latest deployment isn't involved with Border Patrol personnel. And despite a dip in migrant encounters along the Arizona border over the last week, agents here expect that number to rise again. Maudlin says these days, Tucson sector agents are responding to higher numbers of families and individuals looking for agents to turn themselves in and ask for asylum. In terms of, of resources, you know, Tucson sector has a lot of agents. Tucson sector has a lot of technology. But Right now, it's being focused on this. Officials in Pima County have been working with the federal government since 2019 to assist with things like medical screenings and transportation for asylum seekers released by the Border Patrol to await court dates in the U.S. The county gets federal funding for that effort, but the future of that program is still in flux. Meanwhile, County Supervisor Grijalva says people will still arrive at the border because the things driving them to leave their countries haven't gone away. A need for people to be able to you know, escape different situations in their communities and their nations. And so what we're dealing with is this sort of microcosm of all of these things. It's a perfect storm. And this is what we're this is the result. She says without a real effort in Washington to reform the immigration system, that's not likely to change anytime soon. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Lukeville. And I'm Wayne Shutsky in Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Have you been to the Wrigley Mansion? It's a timeless estate that combines historic 1930s grandeur with modern cuisine. Join KJZZ at the Wrigley Mansion on February 17th for the First Press Fine Wine Festival sponsored by Clear Channel Outdoor. More information and tickets at firstpress.kjzz.org. In science news, NASA's mission to place the first-ever commercially-built lander on the moon blasted off on Monday. But long before the mission ran into post-launch difficulties, protests by the Navajo Nation and others over a secondary cargo of cremated remains had taken some of the shine off of the moment. Who's right, who's wrong, and who's to blame? In the new space age of public-private partnerships, calculating that might as well be rocket science. From the Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. Four, three, we have ignition. At least if they consulted with us and made the decision, we could say, you know what, Uh, we consulted with you and we decided to uh, not take your advice and we moved forward. But in this case, there was no consultation. So when Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren objected to the cargo, which also contains human DNA and dog ashes, he referred back to Flagstaff planetary scientist Gene Schumacher, whose ashes reached the moon aboard the 1998 Lunar Prospector mission. Nigren says NASA promised it would consult with them in the future. It was really easy for me as president to make that position because I said, you know, if NASA promised to consult us back then, they should consult us. The moon is sacred to many, and the Navajo culture includes specific prohibitions regarding death and human remains. But cultural values may not tip the scales much when weighed against the stakes businesses and states hold in the quickly evolving space marketplace. 
NASA is leveraging the burgeoning sector through its $2.6 billion Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS program, which pays American companies to handle payloads, operations, launches, and landings. CLPS program manager Chris Culbert. If there are American companies providing a delivery service to the moon, the cost of buying a service is much less than NASA owning the end-to-end mission. But savvy launch companies sell every cubic inch of their precious cargo space, in this case to space burial companies Celestis and Elysium. For engineering and safety reasons, NASA is looped into those discussions, but Colbert says that's where the feedback ends. They don't have to clear those payloads with us. These are truly commercial missions. It's up to them to sell what they can sell. In short, it's not NASA's place as a mere customer to make the call. Joel Kearns of NASA's Science Mission Directorate says they take cultural concerns very seriously, but... Those communities may not understand that these missions are commercial and they're not U.S. government missions. Yet many in the space community scoff at the notion that the U.S. government, which licenses and bears final legal responsibility for all American space flights, has no role to play here. Timmy Abiyaganaba is founder of ASU's Space Governance Lab. I think space might be one of the only areas where all activities are called national activities. doesn't matter who does them. So which agency does the monitoring? Congress is even now debating the National Space Council's proposed regulatory framework for new private space sector activities, which splits oversight between the Commerce and Transportation Departments. People are still not decided on, like, who should authorize. And so that's why they can say they're not doing anything legally wrong. But with the U.S. leading global efforts to return humans to the moon under the Artemis program and its Artemis Accords, America's updated take on the space treaty, it's clear NASA holds plenty of sway. And the Biden administration has prioritized consultation with tribal governments, as demonstrated by an executive order and a NASA forum comprising 48 tribal leaders and 19 indigenous nations. President Biden has been very big and instrumental on protecting sacred sites. The meeting informed a draft NASA plan for tribal consultation and coordination that's still in its comment period. But here's where the space treaty's essential toothlessness becomes clear. Article 9 says state parties to the treaty who think they might cause harm or be harmed shall consult before proceeding. The only thing that there is is to have this consultation, and that's exactly what the Navajo have said, we want you to consult with us. The Navajo Nation likely lacks legal standing to make such a request, except through the U.S. government. Either way, comments under space law pack even less legal force than a debate at a neighborhood zoning meeting. Space law says if you're going to be harmed, consult. It doesn't say that there has to be a finding, because if you just consult and then the U.S. say, oh, we don't care, they can still do it. Because their obligation is the consultation, not the result. That fact, combined with NASA's rhetorical handwashing, feeds fears that it's open season in space. Space entrepreneur Dan Hawk of the Wisconsin Oneida Reservation says if you can contract it, it can fly Artemis. True or not, space may soon enter a wildcatting period in which private sector enterprise outpaces regulation and policy. The U.S. is in a tricky situation because they're trying to grow and promote an industry while also making sure that they're in line with their international obligations. And right now, the international obligations are very murky. With all of space to play for and receiving only shaky support from Congress and the public, it's not in NASA's interest to cut itself out of any deals that help secure its place in a rapidly accelerating sector the agency itself helped to launch. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now let's eat. The show talks about the 2024 food trends in Phoenix. And here's co-host Lauren Gilger to get us started. 
Well, 2024 is here. No, this won't be a conversation about the election year we are now in the middle of. Instead, we're going to talk about food. What will the year hold in the world of dining? Well, from from smashed burgers to high-end tacos to the reverse of Asian fusion, our next guest is here with some interesting trends. Craig Utier is the editor of Phoenix Magazine, and he's on the line now to make us all hungry. Good morning, Craig. Hey, Lauren. All right. So let's start with smash burgers. We're not necessarily talking about the burger chain of the same name here. This is a trend in the Valley that's taken off, you say? I think it is. Yeah. And you're right. It can't be confused or conflated with the uh, the chain. I'm surprised they didn't, you know, trademark the name or something, but it's being used all over the place. There's a restaurant downtown called Bad Jimmy's uh, in the old um, uh, Jamaican restaurant, uh, Breadfruit. Oh, yeah. Which, which went out of business a couple of years ago. People love that place. I think they love this place too. It's uh, gotten a lot of rave notices. Uh, Smash Burger. So it's, you know, it's a hamburger that um, I understand. I've had one before. Uh-huh. They kind of smash it on the grill to give it an extra char. And then they put use, usually use uh, American cheese. And, you know, it's not just uh, this place, Bad Jimmy's, that's using it. There's also a kind of a high-end gastropub called copper and sage on camelback i saw it on the menu you know it's like an 18 dollar burger mm. one of those burgers so you are seeing it around a lot and i think you know i was thinking about this you know americans love hamburgers and it's a uh, you know love affair that's been going on for decades i think there's just an, a kind of a you know a energy to try to spice up the relationship every once in a while you know, we've tried hawaiian burgers we've tried <laughs> you know vegetarian burgers now we're doing smash burgers whatever to you know, to put electricity into the uh, into the relationship. So, yeah. uh, you know, you'll see that around a lot. We love a burger. Okay, so let's talk about the oh, diversity yeah. of food that you can now find in the Valley. Like we're seeing a lot of African restaurants, lots of Salvadorian places. You say regional Thai yeah. cuisine is a big thing right now, like specific regions of Thailand? Right, right. You know, it's been going on for a few years now. We just, our, our current issues, uh, eat around the globe or dine around the world is, you know, kind of the handle we used. Mm-hmm. And we just dived into, you know, every conceivable international style of cuisine we could find. And what we found is, you know, regionality is becoming a big thing, especially in, in Thai cuisine. Kat Bunag, the wonderful chef over at Glybon, kind of kickstarted this five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, she specializes in Thai street food and food from Chiang Mai in the northern region, uh, Isan in the east. And you're seeing that happen a lot, too. Another restaurant people love is um down in actually in mesa uh it's called mekong thai tapas so it kind of mm. is like hint there that it's a different kind of thai restaurant you know thai tapas but it's not a fusion restaurant by any means it really is uh focused on isan which is the thai region in the east um people love you know uh green papaya salads that's from isan mm. a bunch of other different uh dishes um, and he does them wonderfully. Thomas Samuel, he, you know, he's from Thailand. He moved to New York with his family. He moved here a couple of years ago specifically to open this restaurant huh. in, in Mesa. And it is wonderful, very much similar to Glybon in the sense that it, you know, focuses on regionality. Yeah. Is and this, um, is this, Craig, you think like a reflection of the city at large, like this growing diversity of the valley? Well, absolutely. And you know, obviously not just Thai food. And, um, you know, I, people kind of get used to the the mom and pop restaurants. Indian food's another good example where you have, you know, you have this kind of set menu. You know, it's it's uh, you know chicken tandoori, right, and, right, uh, right. And and then what we're seeing now, I think, are more restaurants that are diving into lesser known styles, and that's 
that's, you know, it's a great thing for, for food enthusiasts. Yeah. Okay. We have to talk about tacos. Tacos are always, always big in the Valley. People love tacos, but now it's sort of high end tacos, like gourmet tacos in a way, it seems. I mean, you see, that's been going on for ages. You know, I, I remember thinking 10 years ago, I should open a gourmet taco place. And it's, you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't like any great revelation. People love tacos and you see them everywhere. Now he's low end, high end. Um, even, you know, Rene Andrade, the guy who opened Bacanora on uh, Grand Avenue, which mm-hmm. became an international or national, you know, sensation. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he has a new restaurant on Central uh, Avenue that, you know, it's, it's kind of a taco joint, but these are definitely, you know, $8 tacos, $7 tacos. <laughs> You can also, you know, you can also get the uh, fine lower end stuff. I, yeah, I think, you know, that's a that's a proven trend. Maybe, you know, one that's reaching its apogee. But yeah. Yeah. OK. Another thing you mentioned here, which I think is really interesting, given the moment we live in right now, is this idea that restaurants have to have food that photographs well. Like, is this sort of like the Instagramming of the food world? Like, that's what draws people to a restaurant? We were talking about, you know, what it takes to launch a restaurant and to, you know, worm your way into the collective consciousness. And I think that food that photographs well is, is more important than ever. Um, it's that, you know, that foot in the door that you need to, to get your, you know, to get that initial, uh, spark of interest. Um, you know, I can think of places where I've seen the food and I'm like, wow, that looks amazing. I gotta go try it. And it wasn't that great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, in order for that gets a repeat business, it has to deliver one place that I think has done that remarkably well recently. There's a um, Colombian slash Venezuelan Peruvian place that opened downtown in the Heritage Square district, mm-hmm. right across from the original Pizzeria Bianco, which is, I think what most, most people know that area for. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called Cases On. It's, uh, they have a, it's a Peruvian ceviche called a teradito. That's basically a ceviche, but more kind of like a inspired by Japanese sashimi, sort mm. of a fusion dish. Uh, a lot of Japanese, uh, you know, immigrants in in Peru, and it's so beautiful. It has um, these this these this kind of uh, chili puree on each you know piece of fish, and the fish is cut sashimi style, not typically cube like you see in a, a traditional ceviche right and it, it comes with some ringlets of fried calamari I mean, the whole thing is just a piece of art <laughs> it's the it's the most gorgeous dish i've seen and it delivers it's and absolutely it delicious good. so that's the key it actually and it tastes, tastes good. good all right we'll leave it exactly. there that is craig Utier, editor of phoenix magazine joining us with food trends heading into 2024 craig thanks so much as always we appreciate it thanks lauren see you in education news Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn is getting in touch with school districts to see if they're complying with the state's required Holocaust education law. As Jill Ryan reports, he alleges that schools must not be doing enough given what he calls attitudes surrounding the Hamas October 7th attack on Israel. Horn had held a press conference in November alleging materials passed out by two school clubs were anti-Semitic and anti-American. The clubs made a presentation that supported Palestinians in Gaza and accused Israel of human rights violations. Since then, Horn has doubled down and is now checking that school districts have devoted an adequate amount of time towards Holocaust studies. He alleges that what he calls the one-sided pro-terrorist presentations must be connected to a lack of education. Some parents have alleged that Horn's actions towards this issue have led to student bullying. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in business news. 
a pilot program to help Phoenix property owners affected by homelessness could become permanent. From the business desk, Christina Estes reports on the project's impact. The program offers enhanced cleanups on public streets next to private properties. Between April and December, program administrator Lisa Huggins said they conducted nearly 70 cleanups, collecting more than 60 tons of trash. The cleanups include the contractor power washing the sides of buildings, sidewalks, and and dumpster enclosures, removing human waste and drug paraphernalia, as well as applying deodorizer to help with any foul odors that emanate from the right-of-ways. The program also provides help to people who've paid to have their own properties cleaned at least four times in a year. So far, the city supported 18 private property cleanups. The Neighborhood Services Department plans to request a permanent program to start July 1st. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.